You know, and that's exactly what saving faith does, is that it produces uh, a joy within our soul that moves us to radical acts of righteousness. And you can usually observe this in new converts, right? Who've, people who've led a very selfish life, but then all of a sudden when they learn about the, the, the selflessness of Jesus Christ and the gospel story and how the cross uh, works, that their lives are radically changed. And perhaps you can even remember that in your own life, that initial work of grace uh, upon your heart and how your life just radically changed. In fact, one of my favorite questions to ask new converts is to have them, I uh, ask them, what changes have you noticed in your life uh, since you became a Christian? And, you know, most often they're really thankful for the opportunity to recount it. And the stories go on and on and on about how their thoughts have changed, how their actions have changed, and the list is really exciting. And that's a sign that salvation's really come to this person. Now, as we mature in Christ, you know, that stark contrast of what it was like to be uh, following the world's ways and what it's like to be following Christ's ways, you know, gives way to this uh, steady life of, of this abiding joy and contentment in our lives, and, uh, and God continues to thoroughly work righteousness in our lives. And that's where most of us live from day to day. But if you're like me, um, most of us want an even stronger consistency in our lives. We want to be joyful more of the time. And we also want to become more obedient and doing more acts of righteousness for the sake of the gospel. So perhaps the key passage in Luke's gospel really is the story of Zacchaeus. It's right in the middle. In fact, verse 1910 is the middle verse of the book. It's the whole message of the gospel of Luke. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So this episode also serves as an occasion for Jesus to declare his mission and demonstrate how effective he actually is at getting it done. And you'll see that that's the key point, really. Luke alone relates this story. You don't find it in Matthew or Mark or John. And by telling it, he wants to make known to us very clearly what the mission of Jesus Christ is and what its results are. And so we'll see this morning that Jesus Christ himself is actively seeking out and saving people. That's who's accomplishing the mission. It's Jesus himself. And he's bringing to people a great joy that then leads to a great righteousness in their life. And so what we're going to see in the story of Zacchaeus is that when a person starts encountering Jesus, you know, one thing often leads to the, next, to the next, and before you know it, it leads to salvation. In verses 1 and four, through 4 in the story, we see Zacchaeus' interest in Jesus Christ. And verses 5 to 7, we see that Jesus seeks him out. And then in verses 8 to 10, we see that Jesus grants him salvation. So let's take a look at the first part, this interest he has in Jesus Christ. In verses 1 to 2, we read about Zacchaeus the man. And in verses 3 and 4, Zacchaeus the seeker. So let me read these verses to you. So he entered Jericho, that is Jesus, and he was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. We'll stop there. So Luke continues to relate really a second story about when he was passing through Jericho. This incident about Zacchaeus very likely happened before the healing of the blind man that you read just prior to this. But Luke wants to put it after that story so that we can understand that our joy comes from the confession of the gospel that we read and read about that was on the lips of the blind man. And even before that, this, this is what he understood about Jesus Christ, that he saw by faith, not yet by sight. But you'll notice if you look up in Luke 18, 31 to 34 there, 
Jesus' 12 disciples didn't get it yet, but the blind man got it. And it says, all things which are written through the prophets, Jesus said, about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they've scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. She got done teaching the disciples that. They don't get it. And then there's the story of the blind man who cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he receives his sight. And what he only saw by faith, he now sees with his eyes. And then we get introduced to the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the chief tax collector. You know, he, these tax collectors that we're talking about here are Jewish people, and they're collecting taxes, though, not for the Jewish people, but for the Romans, the occupying army. So they're very unpopular, as you can imagine, among their own people. They're ashamed of their families, and actually they were banned from the synagogues. They couldn't even worship with their people. Tax collection at this time was a very complicated matter, and it wasn't very well regulated. So tax collectors would bid for their positions in the tax structure and the authority, and they were allowed to keep whatever extra they could collect from people. And so you can imagine this system is filled with all sorts of fraud, graft, abuses, uh, it goes on and on. And they were despised as traitors to the Romans and extortionists of their own people. You know, earlier in Luke, we met a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew as you know him, and he was a much lower level tax collector. Unlike Zacchaeus, did you notice that he's called a chief tax collector here? You see, Zacchaeus would have been responsible for all of the toll collection in this very lucrative area. So in other words, it says that he was very rich, much richer than Levi. And as we can probably safely say, he was corrupt. And he was way more corrupt than Levi was. We observed that in that story, Jesus made a great disciple out of a great sinner, right? If you look back in Luke 5, 20, 27, it says, And after that, he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him at his house, and there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining with him at the table. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling as disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we're going to see him do the exact same thing again with Zacchaeus in this story. It goes on to say, verse 3, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So here we find Zacchaeus the seeker. We know a little bit about who he is now. But for some reason, he's really eager to see Jesus. You sort of wonder why, though, right? Perhaps he wants a glimpse of this famous and highly respected rabbi and teacher that undoubtedly his reputation went before him at this point in his ministry. Is he really as great as people say he is? Perhaps he'd heard about Jesus' reputation that he was a friend of sinners. And might it possibly be that he knew he needed that kind of a friend? He was of small stature, it says, and, and the great crowd prevented him from the goal, uh, which was to see Jesus with his eyes. And, you know, sometimes Zacchaeus gets portrayed very poorly, especially in children's uh, Bible cartoons and stuff, as, you know, sort of this 
unsure, no, you can't sing the song, um, but uh, <laughs> sort of this unsure, fearful, sort of mousy type of guy, right? That is, couldn't be further from the truth. That is so highly unlikely. Zacchaeus is a very powerful, wealthy, feared figure in the community. And so he, you know, he abandons his dignity by running and climbing up this tree. I mean, if Zacchaeus came to your house, I imagine him you know, having two big thugs right next to him and saying, now, how much tax do you want to pay? I mean, he's a very intimidating man. And so that's who Zacchaeus is. So we shouldn't have this uh, warped view of who he is. Very powerful, very corrupt, and he could hurt you. And so this is an amazing fact for this man of importance in the community to just run on ahead, climb up this tree to see if he can see Jesus the Lord. So what's happening in this story, in this episode, is not natural. That's what's going on. God is working on this man's mind and heart. And this is what often happens right? People start getting desperate, and they get excited, and they get interested when God is preparing a soul for salvation. That's what's happening in the story. This interest in Jesus Christ that's shown by Zacchaeus, where did that originate? There's surely a lot of different ways to answer the question, but I think Luke wants us to see that God is preparing a soul to be saved. That's what's going on here. The Holy Spirit is stirring up his mind and his heart, and at the appointed time, he will see Jesus for exactly who he is. Jesus will give us the interpretation and the application of every single detail in this story at the very end. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we'll get there in a moment. So it's true that Jesus Christ seeks out and saves people, and he brings them great joy, as we'll see, and it leads to righteousness in their lives. In fact, not too long ago in the Gospel of Luke, in uh, the chapter before in Luke 18, you read about this rich ruler, and, uh, and Jesus says this, back there in that story, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, the things impossible with men are possible with God. And so as Luke's avid readers were, might be wondering, as we're reading along, that might we now see this, a rich man actually pass through the eye of a needle? And that's really what the story is about. His disciples are wondering. They were in on that conversation. Now Jesus, you know, is going to be talking to this, this fearful man, Zacchaeus. So come and see this rich man actually squeeze through the eye of a needle. That's what's going on in the story. So let's look then at the, how he gets sought out by Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 7. In 5, we see that Jesus is the one that goes after Zacchaeus. In verse 6, we see that Zacchaeus re- receives him with joy. And in verse 7 that the crowd complains about the friendship. So in verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, Jesus may have seen Zacchaeus up in the tree, but most likely, you know, Zacchaeus is doing his best to hide from everyone. But he states very clearly to him that he must stay at his home. It's important as we read the story that we understand that this is a divine must that occurs in Scripture often, indicating that there's something going on behind the scenes. There's a divine plan at work and divine knowledge at work in the story. Not only does Jesus have a purpose for Zacchaeus, but he has a purpose in stating what his mission is through the whole episode of Zacchaeus. It carries the same meaning as in John chapter 4, 
4, you're probably familiar with the story of the woman at the well. And Jesus says, uh, or, or it said in the text that he had to pass through Samaria. Of course, if you look at a map, that's not true. Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. That's because that is a divine statement, a divine must statement. There, there are many other commonly traveled routes. More likely, the words concern the nature of his mission. In other words, as you read the story, you know why he had to go through Samaria, because he had an appointment from the Father with a certain woman from Samaria at the, at the certain well of Jacob at noon. And he had to be there for that appointment. And as it gets related later in that story, it's through Jesus the Father is seeking to save that Samaritan woman. For it says, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And here the idea is not so much that the Father accepts these kinds of worshipers, that's not the meaning, but that he actively seeks out men and women to be such worshipers that he's going after them. And that's what's going on in the story of Zacchaeus. And so then in verse 6 we read, He hurried and came down and received him joyfully and goes to his house with his new guest. He's absolutely thrilled that this famous rabbi is going to be eating with him and staying in his home for the evening. Now he's going to get way more than he expected, way more than he hoped for, right? And he's going to get way more joy than what he experiences right now because he's going to get salvation joy. And that's what often happens to people who start showing interest in Jesus. You see, Zacchaeus reveals a very common pattern of God at work in saving someone, drawing them closer and closer to himself. The more he experiences of Jesus, the more he wants. And the more he wants, the more he gets. And it's amazing to see God at work on a soul. In fact, here we see in action some of these uh, famous words of Jesus that are often uh, difficult to understand for some, where Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And John 6:37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Well, if you're wondering how to interpret those passages, here's your illustration. It's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a perfect illustration of how this works. And then the crowd complains in verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And the whole crowd is grumbling to themselves, they're grumbling to one another about Jesus again and the people he hangs out with. You know, why? Not only is it because Jesus is going to be a guest at a sinner's table, but he's going to spend the night there. I mean, that's even more shame. And we've observed these patterns over and over in the gospel accounts, right? Jesus, you know, does these types of things, and then the crowds complain. And these people are disdainful. They're self-righteous, and they're not really of Abraham's faith, though they're of Jewish ancestry. This group might well have included some of Jesus' disciples at the time, but you know, the general public has never approved of Jesus' ways with people. The world still holds great scorn for those who are perceived as greater sinners than themselves. You notice that? And the hatred increases when those people start following God and are blessed with salvation and their lives are changed. Maybe that's your story. It was my story. So, for example, you know, when God decides that he wants to save people that are drunkards or ex-cons or prostitutes or personal enemies of yours, adulterers, immoral people, evil people, violent people, corrupt people, gang people, whatever it is, they hold it against them, right? They become Christians, and then what does the world and all their friends say to them? It's like, what, you think you're better than we are now? 
don't fool yourself. We know who you really truly are. And you're nothing. They say these kinds of things because of their own self-righteousness. It's just like Jesus would teach, if the world hates you, you know, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So, so ironic that the world turns on its own when they become followers of Christ. And the church, on the other hand, is united in accepting such people. That's because we know the grace of God toward us as sinners, and we most gladly, without pretense, tell our own story about our own depth of depravity and how God's grace uh, solved the problem through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how the Holy Spirit has completely transformed us from the inside out. So we understand what God does with people and how He turns sinners into saints. And so we, we gladly receive people who come to Christ from whatever their background. So in this episode, Zacchaeus is the one who gets sought out by Jesus Christ. You know, God seeks out those He's chosen. And he's going to seek them out to bless them with salvation and bring them great joy. And that includes each and every one of you, each and every one of us who have been saved. You've been sought out by God, not because you're worthy, but because you're unworthy. And so that you would make a great trophy of his as a display of his grace. Jesus said, I chose you out of the world. Jesus Christ seeks out and saves people. And when he does it, it is something that brings great joy to a person's soul. And then that joy works itself out in righteousness. So finally, we observe in verses 8 to 10, the salvation from Jesus. Zacchaeus repents with radical joy, we see in verse 8. And then finally, Jesus interprets the story for us in verses 9 to 10. And it's always such a wonderful blessing when you get the interpretation within the text itself. It's so much easier. And so verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, we don't know for sure exactly, if you read this carefully, you don't know exactly when that exclamation from Zacchaeus came. Was it at the tree? Was it on the way home? Was it during the meal? Was it after the meal? Maybe they were sitting around having a conversation about the gospel itself. However, it does appear to be within some kind of a public forum where people are listening. Notice he calls Jesus Lord. He knows who he is, and he declares his resolve of completing his repentance, and he says that he would give 50% of his possessions to the poor. That's quite a statement because among the rabbis, 20% was considered the height of generosity. If you just counted up all your possessions and said, you know, I'm going to make a show of myself, right? Give 20% of everything to the poor, aren't I a great philanthropist? But he's going to give away 50%. And then he says he would repay anybody he defrauded, which is probably a lot of people, 400%. That's huge. The law in Numbers 5 only required a penalty of 20% for this type of an offense. So if you defrauded somebody, you had to pay them back, give them 20% on top. He's giving them 400%. I mean, it's crazy how excited he is, the joy that must be in his soul to come out this way. And so Zacchaeus indeed responded very differently than that rich, self-righteous civic leader just last chapter in the book, one thing you still lack, Jesus said, sell everything you possess and distribute it to the poor. Then you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So this is just as the Apostle Paul would later instruct new converts anyway, right? In Ephesians 4, let him who steals, steal no longer. That's Zacchaeus. 
Now, we observe here then the proof of his repentance. He has deeds to back it up, to complete his profession of faith. It's a mark of true salvation when a person is so overflowing with joy and generosity and righteousness. Well, now we get to Jesus' interpretation in verses 9 and 10. Here he says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus replies to Zacchaeus for everyone to hear that salvation has come to him. He should no longer be called a sinner, but he should be called a true son of Abraham. Now, Jesus is not talking about him being Jewish or becoming a good Jew now, right? Moral reform of our life is not the same thing as salvation. And that is really easy to see in people's lives because they can clean up their lives and come to church, do all the things. But if the depth of the joy that you see in Zacchaeus is missing, probably not salvation has come. So moral reform is not the same thing. In other words, Jesus is not saying, oh, isn't he a good Jew now? No, he's actually been saved by the same faith that Abraham had. And he's joined the true spiritual people of God, the one glorious church. As it says in a few passages from Paul, I want to read to you, Romans 2.28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither a circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Romans 4.16. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In Galatians 3.7, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And finally, Galatians 3.26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So finally, then we read in verse 10, the famous verse that Jesus came, says the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, Jesus came from heaven. He came from the father. He is the eternal son, uh, the second person of the triune God, and he restates his mission to seek and to save the lost. So you remember the parables in Luke, there's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, there's the lost son, all these in chapter 15. That's who Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost. Now, here's a very interesting way he says, you know, his favorite self-designation is that he's the son of man. And it doesn't mean that he's human. Uh, it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Of course, he is human. He's both fully God and fully man. But if you look back in Daniel chapter 7, you know, it's a very glorious picture of what this Son of Man is going to do. And at first reading, when you read Daniel 7, you're thinking, well, his, when the Messiah comes, his glory is going to be immediate, and it's going to be the conquest of the whole earth. But what Jesus is saying here is that that's on its way. But in the meantime, ever since Jesus' first coming, the way he amasses glory for himself is by seeking and saving the lost. That's what glorifies the Son of Man from Daniel 7, who will be coming to inherit the whole earth and give it to his saints. So salvation from Jesus Christ is what is given to Zacchaeus. 
Jesus sought him out, he saved him, brought him great joy and a joy that led to righteousness in his life. That's exactly what he did. And we're to take notice here that Jesus was very successful in his mission from the Father to seek and save the lost. He, didn't, he doesn't fail ever. And through his church preaching him and the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to seek out and to save people and to bring to them a great joy and to bring their lives into a place of greater and greater righteousness. So Luke has shown us that once people start encountering Jesus, things begin to happen in their life. And from Zacchaeus' perspective, from his perspective, this story is a very common story. Um, Jesus piques people's interests by the things that he says, by the things that he does, uh, by his reputation. And then Jesus meets their curiosity and invites them to know him better. And eventually he saves them, forgives their sins, removes the shame of it, gives them freedom from bondage, and gives them the joy of the Holy Spirit. And since this is so often the case, Luke would have us introduce many people to Jesus, to the real Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament, because that's what speaks to people. You know, you talk about training teams, you know, to go do evangelism and stuff. I usually undertrain all my teams on purpose. And really, the only thing I want them to do is to pray and read a gospel. That's it. Because when you go to places where people have never heard the gospel before, what they want to find out about is, who is Jesus? What kinds of things did he say? What kinds of things did he do? Um, you know, what is his reputation? That's what we want to come out of our mouths that's filling up our hearts and our minds. So it's a very common story, Luke's uh, Zacchaeus story. And Zacchaeus then, second of all here as we're concluding, stands forever as a model of salvation's joy and radical righteousness. I mean, when you read this story, it should call you to, to fondly remember your own story, Right? And the joy, that first moment you believed, and, and, and the, the radical transformations that started taking place in your life, it calls us back to remember that. And it calls us then forward to keep on rejoicing in the present, in our salvation, and radically point others to Jesus Christ. You know, many of us have uh, probably made on occasion some kind of an extravagant expression of joy, like Zacchaeus did here. So we feel one with him when he does something really, you know, just out of the box, but he says, I'm just going to give away half of everything. I mean, that's crazy. So, and, and we should feel like we're one with him and uh, wanting to live um, in similar types of ways. But it's also true that sometimes, you know, we end up in places in our life where um, we've forgotten how to express joy or we sense maybe that, you know, it's really been too long since I've done something crazy because I love Jesus and we want to honor him. And if that describes you, you might want to pray through this passage and meditate on it and then commit yourself to living out your faith in a more joyful way. And finally, probably one of the most important lessons we learn from a passage like this in Luke is that Jesus' mission is our mission as his church. That's what Luke is all about. Jesus' mission is our mission as his church. We learned about Jesus and his mission and how effective he is today. That's meant to inform our practice, see, because Jesus Christ is the one who seeks out and saves people, right? He's the one that brings them great joy. He's the one that transforms their lives. Not you and I, not our great crafted words, not, not anything that we can do. We want to see Jesus' purposes of seeking and saving the lost fulfilled as we proclaim the gospel to the world. And uh, it's our prayer and desire that he would do that through us as his church. 
let me, uh, let me pray for us. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for this great salvation we have in Jesus Christ and that you sought us out to be your own, to be trophies of your grace, that you are the one who has changed our desires and caused us to see, opened our eyes to the beauty of who Jesus is as the eternal son and as, and as a perfect man. We thank you for renewing us internally, causing us to be born again and bringing to us the great joy of faith that we now possess and experience every day. So I pray that you would cause us to live in this joy and this knowledge, this reality, this new righteousness. I especially pray for Crossway Church that you'd keep on showing them your power in their life and uh, your effectiveness in their faithfulness in sharing the gospel, whether it's here in Santa Ana, Orange County, or whether it's all the way across the ocean among the Zhuang people who have never heard the gospel. It's your spirit that will make the gospel effective. And we thank you that we can go with boldness and confidence to share it and proclaim it. So we pray all these things, Lord, for your increasing glory in this world in this time. For your sake, Jesus, we pray. Amen.